every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Hi, and welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I'm the county clerk in Boone County, Missouri, and with me is my co-host. Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And today we are very excited to have Dave Kennan. He is the team lead for engagement, assistance, and training with the Election Security Initiative that is part of CISA. So um, we had some conversations with folks from CISA before, but this one's going to be uh, a little bit different, and we'll start out just by asking our usual first question, which is, Dave, how did you end up working in elections in the first place? Well, thank you, Brianna and Eric. I'm really happy to be on the show today. I'm a you know longtime listener, first time caller. It's you know it's really really great to see this podcast uh, in this this space. Uh, I think I I saw some commentary on Twitter, or maybe you guys talking about it in the first episode about how this, especially during the pandemic, the, this podcast kind of serves as the, some of those conversations you might have on the side of an election official conference. And it's, it really seems to be serving that role. And I, I love listening to it. I'm really excited to be, to be a guest today. Um, but your first question, um, and how did I get into elections? So it's a bit of a long and winding story, but uh, we got a little bit of time. So, <laughs> so here it goes. Um, I bet I spent the better part of the you know the past decade working in international development, focused on elections, and then the last four years working on elections in the U.S. at the Election Assistance Commission and now at the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, but my very first work in elections was in 2004. Um, I had the opportunity to be a observer during the Gregoire Rossi gubernatorial recount in Washington State. So to set the scene for you guys, this was the first kind of statewide recount after the 2000 presidential election in Florida. We had two and a half million votes cast, and the initial count had uh, Dino Rossi leading by 261 votes, I believe. And they had two recounts, one automated and one hand recount. And the final tally kind of flipped it over to Gregoire, winning by just over 100 votes. Um, but I'm kind of this young guy, not too far out of college. Had the opportunity to observe kind of various stages of the recount in a handful of counties and but the one i'll always remember and i think this is kind of where i caught the election bug was um, i was observing the recount in ferry county this is one of the least populated counties in the state and just one of the few um, that had yet to phase out their punch card ballots um, anyways they quickly kind of it was a small county so they quickly recounted the ballots by hand, and then they set a few aside to a county canvassing board to adjudicate. Uh, and it was just like what you had seen on the TV related to Florida, right? People holding up the ballots uh, to the light, looking for dimpled and hanging chads. Um, but, you know, it was after 2000, so they had this kind of strong adjudication guidance, um, and it wasn't really, it wasn't really too much room for interpretation. But at this exact point in the recount, uh, one of the candidates was leading statewide by just 11 votes and they you know they had three or four votes that they were going to adjudicate so it was pretty intense stuff and they um the canvassing board kind of looked at this one ballot that was a uh, hanging chad 
um, and they determined it was a vote for one of the candidates based on the guidance. Uh, but then they were writing up the kind of new tally, and they had the new tally had subtracted a vote from one candidate and added a vote to another candidate. And kind of here I am thinking, wait, how is that possible? Like it couldn't be a you know a punch hole for one candidate, and then the ballot turned into a punch hole for another candidate. Like that's what it would need to be for a two-vote swing. And so I, you know, just 24-year-old Dave kind of intervened and said, you know, hey, that doesn't sound right. You guys need to kind of recount this stack and, and check that tally. And they recounted the they recounted the stack and it turned out I was I was right, you know, after a little bit of partisan posturing by the county canvassing board. And uh, it turned into a one-vote swing. And anyways, that's a long story short. I'm walking out of the building that day and one of the observers stops me and kind of asked me where I went to law school. And I'm like, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't go to law school. I was just a, you know, a young kid who kind of read the rules and knew a little bit of math. Um, but it was a pretty surreal experience. You know, I, you know, got to be in this place at the moment of time and then you know, I had a chance to impact kind of who, who might've won that election. I mean, the final, the final tally was, you know, over a hundred votes and it didn't, it, you know, one vote here or there probably wasn't, um, the, the end of it but it was it was a pretty neat experience and i got the you know i got to see uh the ins and outs of kind of how elections are you know how recounts are run so i think that's kind of when i caught the election bug but i probably didn't know it then um fast forward a few years and i'm a graduate student um studying russian language and the post-soviet space um i kind of had pretty interested in um, U.S. foreign policy at the time. I think after 9/11 and after the war in Iraq, you know, a lot of a lot of people my age were interested in foreign policy. I kind of got drawn into the you know, what were called the color revolutions in in the post-Soviet space: Georgia, Ukraine, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and I'm fortunate at the time to get a fellowship to study abroad in Kyrgyzstan. And while I'm there, I meet this kind of young U.S. Foreign Service officer who told me that he had been uh, an election observer in that country the year before with the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And I'm just, I'm thinking to myself, like, wait a second, like, you're basically me. You're just this young guy uh, with some language skills and a little bit of area knowledge. And plus, I've got a little bit of election experience, right? I've been a recount observer uh, in Washington State. And I'm thinking, like, so you know, you're, are you telling me that I could be an election observer? Like it did sound, sounded like something that was completely out of, out of the realm of possibilities for me. And he says, yes. He's like, yeah, sometimes they just bring on people like us with some kind of language skills and folks who won't complain if they're, you know, sent to some of the, the, the you know, uh, tougher parts of the country, um, kind of tougher places to live. And, and, uh, and so I applied the very next time I got, I got, uh, I got back to the States. I saw an opportunity to go to Azerbaijan. I applied and I got selected. And I'm thinking, I mean, this is incredible. So I go on the, I go on the mission uh, and anybody who's been on an international election observation mission, um, use the, you know, one of the first things you do is you assemble in the, in the capital. And there's this team of experts that kind of brief you on, you know, what, what's going on in the country, you know, media landscape, the, legal framework for elections, the electoral system, kind of how they set up their elections, who the candidates are in the political parties. And I'm just looking up at this dais of, you know, dais of experts, and I'm thinking, man, I want that job. Like, I, I didn't even know that job existed. How, you know, how is it possible that people get 
kind of paid to to travel to interesting countries at interesting moments and look at their at their elections and their broader politics. And so I spent the better part of the next um, I don't know five, four or five years trying to get that job, uh, kind of turning myself into an election specialist. I was fortunate to get a job at the National Democratic Institute, which um, supports uh, it kind of runs um, assistance programs across the across the world, um, democratic development projects, election observation, and whatnot. And you know, several years later, I kind of had that job. I transitioned into consulting, and I was you know getting paid to be an election kind of subject matter specialist um, to work on election observation missions and election assistance projects around the world. Uh, and it was just this incredible, incredible experience, right? It took me to Pakistan and Sudan. Uh, some uh, I got to work on Somalia from from outside Somalia. I was in Myanmar. Uh, very, very um, humbling and and incredible, you know, experience. I didn't, you know, growing up in in Spokane, Washington, I never kind of thought that any of that would be possible. Uh, I guess how did I end up uh, at the EAC and then and then at CISA? So I guess I'm just. I don't know, around 2014, 2015, I'm thinking about starting family uh, and kind of having more stable employment. And I can, I figured I could get a full-time job uh, at kind of at an aid organization at the headquarters level or kind of, you know, meeting my interests better would be to try to get involved in American elections. And I had just dozens and dozens of informational meetings trying to Kind of convince American election officials and folks that worked in the think tank world and the nonprofit world that kind of my experience might be useful domestically. Heck, I even I think I met you, Eric, during this time. I think we met at the Istanbul airport on the way to uh, Uzbekistan on election observation mission. And I asked you for advice on how to get, how to get work in in, in U.S. elections. Uh, anyways, I just had lots of informational meetings, and I, I met Sean Green through the process, um, and Doug Chapin through the process, and and uh, the two of them gave. I think Doug Chapin gave me a consulting assignment, and then uh, you know in 2017, Sean Green and Brian Newby um, gave me a job offer to work at the EAC on the research team. I'd just be forever grateful to them for taking a chance on me. And I got to I got to work on the election administration and voting survey, which you know every election geek's dream job, I'm sure, <laughs> is to work on the the eaves. Um, but it was just a really really awesome time, and and through that work, I got to know Matt Masterson, who was a commissioner for a bit of the time that I was at the EAC, and and a few years later when I was looking for uh, something new, I was really fortunate to get and this opportunity to come over to, to come over to CISA. So that's a long, long, uh, long answer to your short question about kind of how I got into into election. So one of the things that I know that you worked on some when you were at the EAC and comes up a lot, I feel like, in conversations about whether the, I guess, the intersection of academia and elections and just general data analysis is the EVES data. So can you talk a little bit about your experience with the EVES data, um, any kind of challenges that you encountered while working with it, and kind of maybe some of the evolution, if you want to touch on that too? Uh, sure. I mean, I, yeah, really, really fortunate to get to work on the election administration and, 
and voting survey, as I mentioned, right? It's the most comprehensive uh, elect, you know, election administration and voting data out there, right? It's a census of all election jurisdictions in the country, and it's kind of an accounting of all sorts of um, vital things about how elections are run, you know, basic things like um, how many uh, individuals are registered per jurisdiction, uh, how people are getting on the voter rolls, right? mode of registration, mode of voting. Um, and you never really know kind of what data is going to be uh, interesting at any given moment in time. And I think that the pandemic really, really shined a light on that um, this year, uh, right? So in, when I was working at the EAC, we spent a lot of time looking at kind of the voter registration data um, you know, a lot of the public conversation or, or at least uh, advocacy interest or, or legal uh, policy um, discussions were about, you know, automatic voter registration, automated voter registration, same day voter registration, um, you know, a lot of interest in list maintenance. And so we were kind of spent a lot of time looking at that, that data and how to improve that data. However, uh, the pandemic comes around and and all of a sudden, people are looking at motor voting data, which I was, cause was always uh, relatively interesting. It was incredible, you know, people trying to look at this really important question, how do we have less, how do we uh, meet voter demand and, and try to have less voters in the polling place itself, right? Can we shift some of them to early imposing? Can we shift some of them to voting by mail? And if we do the voting by mail, how do we make sure our you know, our rejection rates are, are at, a, at a reasonable level. And so people are looking at the kind of the uh, different data points that hadn't gotten a lot of scrutiny uh, in recent years. Uh, and that's, that's really, really interesting stuff. I mean, even the age of poll workers data was relevant for, uh, <laughs> for the first time. You know, I used to go around the country giving presentations on, on the ease data and kind of what we knew about elections and the age of poll workers slide was just kind of a laugh laugh slide you know it was a it was like a here's here's the here's here's what we already all knew already right uh, poll workers tend to be older you know and it, it sometimes i got a laugh um and you know all of a sudden that data is hyper relevant to the, kind of the policy uh and procedural questions of the day right how do we um make sure that our poll workers are uh, you know, tend to be, or how do we, you know, if this population group is more susceptible to adverse consequences from, from COVID, right? How do we, how do we make that group younger for 2020, especially in the, in the urgency of the primaries and later for November? So the data, I mean, I guess this is just to talk, this, this point is to say, you don't know what uh, data is going to be valuable at what moment. I think, you know, our, our, I think you had Paul Gronke on from Reed College. You know, they've got this survey with the Democracy Fund on local election officials, right? They had some questions about retirements, right? I think they're presumably looking at just broad questions of professionalization in the field and career trajectory. But then these kind of this, this data they had on, on expected retirements uh, after 2020 was kind of more, more relevant in the context of of the kind of the ongoing harassment and threats that election officials are facing uh, in during 2020 and post 2020. So it's, I think both of these kind of anecdotes speak to kind of the value of having this baseline data. Cause you don't, you don't know what what's coming around the corner, what will be the issue um, in election administration uh, for, you know, for years to come. 
anyway, that's that's just some kind of top line thoughts I had about the the Eves. I'm happy to talk talk more. Hey, one question I had uh, concerning Eves, and I don't know to what extent you can speak to it, but I know one at least concern with the Eves is that um, jurisdiction states or localities um, sometimes don't report all the information. You know, maybe they some county just doesn't respond to the survey and then there's just a hole there. And maybe there's also a concern that a state or locality misunderstood the question or is responding incorrectly to the, the survey question. From your former seat at EAC where you were doing this, to what extent can the EAC reach back out to those entities and say, hey, I don't know if this data point looks exactly right or could you go back and ask you know xyz county if they you know could respond to this that kind of thing to what extent does that happen and if at all and right. does, you know does it help i don't know right so i guess the first thing i'd say is please reach out to the eac or their partners at forest marsh group who do the survey right they they're going to know the latest and greatest this is you know this the ease is not my baby anymore to manage so highly recommend you talk to them directly um but I can, but I can't speak broadly to some of this. Um, you know, we had we had this kind of goal, or, or three kind of interrelated goals with all the things we were trying to do with the EVs, right? We were trying to make it easier to complete, right? The survey is a huge uh, burden on, you know, the folks who fill it out, especially the folks, that, especially in the states that push it down to the locals and don't have all that data at their fingertips through their statewide voter registration database. Uh, and number two, right, we're trying to improve data quality and completeness, right? This is a huge survey, right? It touches, I think there's 6,500 some odd respondents, uh, you know, 300, I'm, I'm probably getting the number wrong, but several hundred data fields that every respondent is expected to fill out, um, right? And very nuanced um, questions, right? The, you know, what, you know, you got to you got to phrase the questions in a way that makes sense to all election officials in the country and with this hyper decentralized uh, setup we have that's a tricky thing to do um and you also have kind of sticky questions right these questions were written some of these questions were written you know in 2004 2006 the first iterations of the survey and you kind of don't want to you, know, you don't want to change your questions too much right because people want to be able to do longitudinal analysis you know studying you know how people responded you know, 10 years ago to today so that's i mean that's the second thing but they've done made a lot of strides in that in that regard and then the third thing is like how do we make uh, the survey more useful to to end users and especially election officials themselves um and that third part of it was kind of where i i spent a lot of time happy to talk more about that on this uh, podcast if if that's uh where where things head but uh, but the second piece, right, right, is this data quality and completeness. I mean, the the, the main thing that the, the EAC and Forest Marsh, uh, the current contractor for the EVs, do is they send the data back. Right, they they pro they get all the data in, they they review it, they look for some things that could be kind of flagged. You know, some this number looks a little silly or not, potentially uh, incorrect based on what you re replied last year or based on how you responded to a different question. Um, you know, an obvious one would be, you know, you, you said you had same day registrants, but you know, your policy survey answer, this, the policy survey is the statewide survey that asks them questions about the policy framework in the state. So you responded to the policy survey saying you don't offer 
online voter registration or same day registration, but here in the survey itself, you're saying you process this many voters same day or this many voters uh, online, right? It can flag it can flag some of that data. Um, and so the so these kind of flags, basically every state gets a memo, a kind of detailed memo of things that, that the that the data consumption team has, has flagged. And they kind of get an opportunity to to correct it or look into it before they certify the data as final. And I think that that process itself, you know, I got to see it, it go, you know, I got to see that two times when I was there. Like that's gotten a lot more involved since um, since you know, since the early days of the survey. So transitioning in, um, you were at the EAC, you're now over at CISA, and you're working a lot on engagement, it sounds like, but what now heading into the 2022 election cycle and beyond that 2024, what kind of projects are you working on now that um, I guess local election authorities should be aware of or can participate in? Before I talk about what we're focused on as we head into 2022 and beyond, I think it's helpful to reflect a bit on where we've been. Since 2016, CISA's work in the election sector with our election partners has included establishing an information sharing and analysis center for the election sector and building its membership to include all 50 states and more than 3,000 local election offices and hosting four national tabletop exercises for election infrastructure stakeholders and more than 50 exercises for state and local election officials and their partners. Reflecting on this, one of my main takeaways from the 2020 elections in the last five years is that the rationale behind the 2017 designation of election infrastructure as critical infrastructure, that state and local election officials should not be expected to combat sophisticated state-sponsored threat actors alone, remains as true today as it did in the aftermath of 2016. So what does all this mean for 2022 and 2024 and CISA's election security mission moving forward? The first thing I want to say is that election security remains a top priority for CISA and DHS. We're not taking our foot off the gas just because 2020 went off without any cybersecurity or physical security incidents that disrupted core election operations. We can build off the great work the election community has done in the last five years to bring even more people into this election security community of practice, including election officials in small and mid-sized jurisdictions that we haven't been able to reach since 2016, and all the new people who are entering the field following the 2020 elections. Secondly, we fully recognize that election officials are facing an even more complex election security problem set now than they were in the aftermath of 2016. In addition to threats posed by foreign cyber threat actors, election officials are also dealing with unprecedented levels of election-related mis-, dis-, and malinformation and threats to their physical safety and security. So we're looking to make sure we continue to add value in the area of cybersecurity, but also to expand our activities that help strengthen the physical security of election infrastructure and personnel, as well as activities that help election officials and their private sector partners to combat rampant, mis-, dis-, and mal-information regarding election infrastructure. I'd like to highlight a handful of CISA services that election infrastructure stakeholders may want to take advantage of ahead of 2022 or 2024. First and foremost, I want to promote four new and updated election security trainings that my team delivers both in person and virtually. These include a CISA election security overview training that summarizes the threat landscape and a broad range of CISA services available to election officials. Two cybersecurity focused trainings that take a deeper look at the risks posed by ransomware and phishing and a new training called Building Trust Through Secure Practices that seeks to help election officials navigate the new post-2020 environment and better communicate their security practices to their voters. 
We've delivered 39 of these trainings over the last year, including with you all in Missouri, reaching more than 2,700 election infrastructure stakeholders. Second, I wanna make sure your audience is aware of CISA's exercise offerings. In addition to our annual tabletop to vote exercise, we can also host state level exercises or exercises for individual jurisdictions or election vendors. In addition to the four national tabletop exercises we've, we've done, we've hosted more than 50 exercises with election infrastructure stakeholders since 2017. And I believe we have seven scheduled so far for the next year, including one in Missouri. Finally, I want to encourage your election official listeners who have not done so already to transition their website to a .gov top-level domain. Since administration of the .gov top-level domain transitioned to CISA at the end of April, approximately 500 state and local government offices, including election offices, have transitioned to .gov domains. .gov is now available to election officials at no cost, and our team stands ready to help you make the transition. In this era of unprecedented levels of mis- and disinformation about elections, we want to make sure your websites and email addresses end in .gov to help signify that election officials are trusted sources of official government information on elections. You've reached out to a lot of election officials, but you mentioned you're trying to make that relationship kind of deeper, reach out to more people. You know, there's that old football coach saying, you know, everybody has a play, everybody has a plan until the other guy smacks you in the face and then kind of goes out the window. So for the regular local election official out there, come election time, they have something happen and all the training or advice they've received from CISA, maybe that goes out the window in a worst case scenario. What can they do? Who can they reach out to in kind of an emergency situation like that at, at CISA to, to help get back on the right track? Election officials are natural contingency planners. Needless to say, it's essential for election officials to have plans in place to document how you and your staff would respond to a cyber incident. The same is, of course, true for natural disasters, physical security incidents, and other potential disruptions to election operations, especially disruptions that may occur during the election period when core election operations like voting or counting are taking place. But it's not enough to just have a good plan in place, right? You need to test it and be ready to dust it off when an incident occurs. We at CISA have multiple no-cost customizable products and services that can help election officials establish an incident response plan and exercise your incident response muscles a little bit. The first product I'd like to highlight is our Cyber Incident Detection and Notification Planning Guide for Election Security. This guide includes worksheets and templates that can walk you through how to establish a cybersecurity incident response plan for your office or enhance your existing plan if you already have one. Secondly, I want to highlight again our exercise offerings. As I mentioned before, our exercise team can work with your state election office or state association of local election officials to organize a customized tabletop exercise for your state. Tabletops and other exercises like them are a great way for you and your staff to get some practice responding to hypothetical incidents. But we all know that even the best laid plans can go out the window in the heat of the moment. If you haven't tested your plan or built the necessary muscle memory around it, are you going to make the right decision when a cyber incident occurs? Probably the most important thing you and your colleagues need to internalize from your incident response plan is, who do you need to reach out to first when an incident occurs? Every jurisdiction is going to be different here, but for cybersecurity incidents involving election infrastructure assets that are managed locally, this is probably going to be someone in your information security office or IT department. This could be someone in your election office or perhaps in your county or municipal government. 
While CISA is likely not going to be your first point of contact when responding to a cybersecurity incident, we of course encourage election officials to notify us and our partners at the Election Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center, or EIISAC, about cybersecurity incidents and potential incidents. This helps inform our understanding of what's going on across the sector. And in some instances, we may be in a position to provide additional incident response assistance to complement whatever assistance you're receiving locally or from your state. Okay, that was another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins. Big thanks to Dave Cannon for being our guest, talking about SZA stuff. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you listen next time to High Turnout, Wide Margins.